1: Welcome into the QB SCO show. This is episode 26, brought to you by the fine folk at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. You can follow my work at bleedinggreennation.com. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist, NFL, that's K I S T. As always, and for a triumphant return here to the QB SCO show, as we've been on hiatus for a bit, the guy with me, as always, is Mark Schofield, QB1 in my heart. Mark, I know you've got a history reference to kick this off with, as always, but I do want to warn the gentle listeners, we've been digging a lot into the topic that you're about to bring up. So if you want to get to the football stuff, and we're going to talk RPOs, we're going to talk about the college prospects coming out and some other things. If you want to get to that part, you might want to fast forward anywhere from the next five minutes to 15 minutes, depending on how long this goes. Mark, how you doing, brother?
0: I'm doing well, buddy. And yeah, just heads up, we are going deep. A little bench mode reference there but we are going deep into the weeds on this one and we have been on a little bit of hiatus but we are back and we're going to be back in a big way and we always kick it off with a historical reference and we're going to talk today about Battle of Alesia. For those of you that might not remember, this was basically the finale to the Gaelic Wars. It took place in 52 BC. And to sort of set the stage, we like to give some context here, right? Yep. Those of you who remember your days in his high school history, you remember the Roman triumvirate, right? You had Pompey, you had Caesar, and you had crashes. And why did they put this into motion? Well, first of all, Pompey pulled one of the best moves of all time. There was a revolt led by Spartacus that Crassus and Caesar helped to put down, but they didn't have Spartacus's body when they finally overwhelmed him. So Pompey, who was leading a different army, he had to get a little engagement with some of the stragglers from Spartacus's, you know, slave revolt army, and he like raced back to Rome and basically took credit for putting down Spartacus. Basically pulled the, look, man, you've got no evidence, so I'm going to take all the claim for this. And he got away with it. So he starts, you know, making a play for the Roman consul position, him and crashes are button heads. And finally, Caesar's like, look, make me consul. I'll get you guys what you want. And so that's what they did. This worked for a while. But then Caesar and his sort of heavy handedness wore on the Senate and they were basically turned on him. And so Pompey and crashes booted Caesar. They're like, look, you're done. Adios. See ya. But they gave him his choice of governorships and Caesar being the forward thinking man. It's like, i got to do something and come back a conqueror. So he chose a governorship that bordered on Gaul, which was what we now know as sort of France, that region. And his vision was this. If I conquer Gaul, which to this point has been like the thorn in Rome's side, I will come back a hero. And so he invades Gaul without the consent of the Senate. The illegal war. Yeah. And it's like legit blitzkrieg style, right? Yeah. Because the thing with Gaul was they have all these tribes, but they've never united. So he's just attacking them. He's not even using supply lines, and we'll get to the reason why that's key in a moment. Yeah. But he's, like, living off the earth. And so finally, there's this one leader of a Gaelic tribe. We'll just call him Big V, okay? Because I'm not pronouncing this dude's name. Let's just call him Big V. Vercingetorix. There you go. See, that's why you and I work together. You're the classical (laughs) history dude. I'm the, like, (laughs) modern European to U.S. history kind of guy, okay? Yeah. But Big V... (laughs) <laughs> finally sort of decides that A, he could start uniting the tribes of B, he's going to make a stand in Alatia. And mm. what he does is he like salts the earth, burns it to the ground. He's like, if Caesar's going to live off the earth, I'm going to prevent him from doing that. So he burns everything, they hole up in Alatia and Caesar surrounds this little settlement. And Caesar does something amazing. He's like, we're going to starve him out. And how are we going to do that? We're going to build a wall around yeah. your settlement. So he builds a wall. And as that's going on, Big V's little Idea of uniting the tribes comes to fruition, and so like two hundred and fifty thousand Gauls start descending upon where Caesar's encampment now has a encircled. So Caesar pulls what we call in the Twitter world a Fehi flank or a <laughs> keyan maneuver, where he literally builds a second wall and like entraps himself. Yeah, <laughs> and he's like, "Look, we're gonna have we're gonna fight a two front battle, and we're gonna have two walls, one keeping." You know, Big V and his troops in Elysia, and the other keeping the Gauls out from attacking us from behind, and he pulls
1: it off. And it's a it's a ten mile wall, and yeah. this is this is fifty thousand Romans. They trap seventy thousand like ethnically mixed tribal people known as the Gauls. On that fortified hilltop, right, strong defensive position. But like this siege is just like not any other siege that I've ever seen in history. They turn it into a death trap, and then they put the ten mile wall around it. Then they've got a twenty feet deep by twenty feet wide trench, then another trench to fill with water. It's like fifteen by eight, and then another dry trench. And they've got spikes and, and poles and, and, and sharp pieces of wood so that they can impale them. You know, the enemy can impale themselves on it. And then they've also got like those caltrops, like those those little barbs for like when soldiers are running through like the... The, that, that area, they're, they're getting all this stuff stuck in their legs and the horses and their hooves and everything like that. Like there's so much going on. It's like a it's like a three-front war is what it ends up being.
0: Yeah, it's crazy, but it works. And and that's why we call it the Fehi flank or the Kean maneuver or whatever you want to sort of call it. Because it's like Caesar made an interesting call here, all right? Let's just be honest. He starts this sort of illegal, non-consensual war. It's not, you know, non-consensual in the sense that the Senate did not approve it. Obviously, the Gauls did not consent to being invaded. (laughs) So he makes an initial sort of bad move, perhaps, but then he like doubles down on that, and then he builds the wall, and then he builds this sort of entrenchment behind him and traps his own troops, his own legions in this little area. It says, we're making a stand here. It's like you bring one bad take, then you bring another, and then you just (laughs) die on the hill. It's impressive from Caesar. But of course, what this sets in motion is... The Crossed of the Rubicon, which, by the way, Rubicon, Tom Scott, Tom Holland, excuse me, great book. Mister Kiss actually sent it to me because yeah. he's a purveyor of, of great literature. And <laughs> look, the other thing we have to remember is Crassus, when he sees this come in motion, he realizes that he needs a victory of his own. Yeah. So he bails, goes <laughs> east, and gets molten gold poured down his throat in a nod to Viserys,
1: Yeah, which is he- amazing. He he was uh, he was getting up there in age, and he's like, I want to cover myself in some glory. So he goes to Parthia <laughs> to take discovered. on the horse archers, <laughs> and they get led down like this treacherous yeah. path. You know, the the person leading them like kind of takes them like the worst way ever, so Parthia can you know like really regroup and whatnot and uh, they they just they decimated them and they yeah they took them to task and then poured poured molten gold on them it was it was incredible one one of the one of the battles before that in, in the whole gallic wars and everything like that when when uh caesar is going through central gaul that i really found interesting there's so many different ones like is, like really dope like an awesome battle to study cuz it's unlike any other like i said before but they get to uh, the siege of varicum and Big V, aka Halapuli Vaitai, is there <laughs> fortified and everything like that. And he's like in this in this like walled city, right? And so what Caesar does is like, I'm gonna I'm gonna build the ramp. Right up to your walls, and we'll bring my siege towers right up to your walls. So then, like Halapuli Vati is like, well, I'm gonna dig a tunnel under my walls, and I'm gonna set your ramps on fire, and then I'm gonna come attack you, and a big battle breaks out. Like, there's so many, so many cool battles to the Gallic Wars. Uh, you you would mention a number like 250,000. That's the number that Caesar gave. I think historians put it more at like 150,000, but that was a big part of it. That was his propaganda campaign, sending back you know each chapter of the Gallic yeah. Wars to to the Roman people to like propagandize himself and lift himself up and. And everything like that Eddie
0: wrote the what in like third person yeah,
1: yeah. so he was so like passing it off like those. somebody
0: else was like man this guy is glorious he's <laughs> like he was that the first actual historical burner account
1: yeah <laughs> that's incredible i like that yeah the first historical burner account is Julius Caesar with his Gallic Wars. I'm a big fan of that. I mean, really, before that, you get to Alexander, where the only thing we know about him are from the people around him. And I'm sure it was the message very carefully crafted by Alexander the Great himself. But yeah. All right. Football. It was just That was just like seven minutes. It wasn't too long. Oh, really? Was That was it? Okay. Yeah. Well, we, we got a little bit more time. But no, let's, let's get into some football talk. I hope you enjoyed History Chat with Mark Schofield and Michael Kist here on BGN Radio. Subscribe, TV. rate, and review. Yeah, it could be its own show. But if you've made it to this point or you just scrubbed ahead and you found it, here's the football talk right here. So what we're going to talk about, like I said, we're going to talk about some run pass options. We're going to talk about some some college prospects, some other things and whatnot. But, I mean, the one question that I wanted to ask you, and we had a lost recording on this. so we're, This is our second take around on this. But I had asked you before, like, what happened to the love? For the run pass option in 2017 and into the offseason, it was all the rage. Color commentators mansplained what the letters RPO meant like 270 times a game. You know, there were so many different articles about the RPO, its philosophy and, and how it came about. Parents named their children conflict defender. And then, you know, a year later, a summer later, you Google Philadelphia Eagles RPO and I guarantee you most of the results are a year older or more. And it's not as if the concept suddenly stopped working. This isn't a story akin to the wildcat or to the lesser extent, the read option, perhaps the new car smell is dissipated, but teams still use it often and effectively. And you can count the Eagles as one of those teams still utilizing the RPO pro football focus has the Eagles usage frequency ranking eighth, second, and third from 2016 to 2018. And furthermore, They've noted that the Andy Reid coaching tree, like that's a big influence on the matter because they say, quote, Reid is one of the league's biggest RPO advocates, and he has sold his former offensive assistants on the play as well. Philadelphia Eagles head coach Doug Peterson served on Reid's staff in Kansas City from 2013 to 2015, and then he brought that with him. And then the article continues succeeding Peterson in Kansas City as offensive coordinator was Matt Nagy. But after serving two seasons as Reed's right hand man, Nagy left to become the head coach of the Chicago Bears. Now, with one season of head coaching experience under his belt, it's quite obvious Nagy has taken some of Reed's philosophy with him to the Windy City as Chicago's RPO's usage skyrocketed from 2.7% in 2017, that ranked 26th, to 19.2% in 2018, that's second. So, three playoff coaches. Heavily leaning top three on RPOs, all from the same coaching tree. Mark, why aren't we talking more about this?
0: Well, there's a lot that you just kind of threw at the gentle listener, so we're gonna work our way through it the best as we can here. I I think part of the reason that say big media, color commentators, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, aren't talking about it as much is because they sort of overplayed their hand in the season prior. I mean, during Super Bowl Fifty Two, if you played the drink every time RPO was mentioned drinking game i'm happy that you gentle listeners, survived because you probably shouldn't have given how much it was mentioned but the problem with that is a lot of times these weren't RPOs. These were just basic play-action plays and they just got sort of misconstrued as RPO. So I almost wonder if people sort of dialed back the RPO discussion because it gets misdiagnosed a lot of times. And even those of us that do this for a living that have the benefit of, say, game pass and pause and rewind, and it takes a while to sort of dis- decide what it was. Was this an actual RPO or was this just straight run, straight handoff, straight play-action play? And so it's often difficult to really decipher what a team is doing when you're doing it live and so that might be the reason we're dialing back Hmm. I think the other thing to think about with the RPO is we're going to see more of this because it's a way to get inexperienced younger quarterbacks onto the field and effective quickly and we've seen this with like you said Andrew Reid and his coaching tree and Patrick Mahomes we saw it with Doug Peterson obviously using it with Carson Lentz although you could say that he might have even used it more with Nick Foles. I mean, there's numbers in terms of one-step drops, which we often associate with sort of RPOs, where mm. Nick Foles led the NFL with that. And a you know, good right. buddy over at SIS, Bryce Ross, has the numbers to back that up. And then there's the man you lovingly refer to as Stumpy Mitch, Mitch Trubisky. Stumpy <laughs> where- Mitch. <laughs> Slumpy Mitch. I thought it was Stumpy either way.
1: That would have worked you know, too.
0: Yeah, well, where you're trying to get... A quarterback that might have some limitations to be effective at this Uh point in his career when he's young and trying to figure it out, you use these designs that A, he's familiar with, and B, like you said, put defenders into conflict. And the way I always like to think about RPOs is that they're really just the next sort of evolution of what is one of the basic tenets of offensive football. If you think about, say, a Mills concept, for those of you that aren't aware, that's a two-receiver route concept where you have a post route over the top and then a dig route working underneath. You get a safety in the middle of the field, say cover three, cover one. What you're really trying to do is just high-low him, right? If that safety breaks down on the dig route, you throw the post route over his head. If he stays deep, you throw the dig route in front of him. You high-low him, you put him into conflict, and you make a decision based off of him. All sort of your basic RPO concepts where, you know, everybody's traditional RPO that they think of is that slant route, and you have the inside zone tag, and if the linebacker jumps the zone route, the zone read inside, you throw the slant over his head. If he stays deep on the slant, you hand it off. It's like the same thing, right? You've got that linebacker, you put him into conflict, and you're high load him. It's only one of the options here. The low route, in essence, is a handoff. And so it's a way to sort of simplify things. And if you think about offensive football in general, right? Guys like Mitch Trubisky, guys like Kyler Murray, guys like Patrick Mahomes, they've been running these types of plays since they were 12, 13, 14. And now they're going to be running it on Sundays, and it's something they're familiar with. And anytime you can give a quarterback something that he's been doing for seven, eight, nine years, he's going to be pretty good at it. And so it's a way to get these guys onto the field. And so we should be talking about it more, yes, in some sense, the X's and O's aspect of it, but we should be looking at it as sort of a – just the next sort of evolutionary step of football and give it the context of the economics and getting these younger quarterbacks onto the field and giving them ways to be effective early – and then sort of developing them out. Now we're doing this on Madden release day, when you've got guys like Daniel Jones with a 63 overall, lower than Tyree Jackson. A little high. If you're going to get Daniel Jones, a little high. if you're going to get Daniel Jones on the field and effective, you have to give him stuff he's familiar with, i.e., yeah. some RPO
1: stuff. And that's what he thrived with at Duke, yeah. and you know it, it can be seen as a philosophy that like people sometimes take it as a knock like okay like Nick Foles led the league in, in in those one step drops and whatnot and Trubisky uses a lot of those but like when we talk about like Trubisky Andy Benoit had an article about the Bears where he was like you know the offense really shrunk with Trubisky Nag- Nagy really dialed it back like no they just ran a lot of RPOs and that's and that's fine like that's perfectly fine that's a smart thing for Nagy to do he still had his downfield concepts we talked about him coming into the playoff game yeah. Trubisky doesn't real great at throwing it downfield at the moment they still tried it but one thing you can do for your offense to make things simple and hey look that's the job of an offensive coordinator of a head coach to yep. make life easier on his quarterback. And if he can do that and establish a rhythm with these RPO concepts, then it's it's not a knock on them. It's just kind of the way it is. It's perfectly that, fine.
0: That's one of the, you know, it's sort of football, Twitter, fan Twitter, that world. Yeah. That always seems to be used as like a knock on quarterbacks, right? It's like, you know, look, I'm a Patriots guy. Okay. So I see all the time, probably forty times a day, oh Brady's just a system quarterback. He gets help. <laughs> you know, from his offensive coordinator. Chris Sims just – As part of his justification for Patrick Mahomes being ranked over Brady, he said that, look, Mahomes doesn't have Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick drawing things up for him. Now, look – if you want to rank Patrick Mahomes ahead of Tom Brady right now in the year of our Lord 2019, look, I'm all for that. Like, I get it. I'm fine. I'm, yeah. Look, those two guys are in my tier of quarterbacks I would rely on to win a game if my life depended on it. I hmm. get it. But let's not act like Andy Reid doesn't know what he's doing out there and he doesn't <laughs> know how to design a play. I mean, the guy knows how to design a play and all of these coaches should be helping your quarterback. It's like some bravado thing where, oh, these guys need to create on their own. No. Get a little bit of help for your guy. Give him some easy throws. And look, well, James Coe, formerly of you know Next Gen Stats, and he's doing some other things for like the New York Post, he put this little thread together. Look, according to Next Gen Stats, Patrick Mahomes is throwing to some wide open guys. Yeah. And he was trying to make the case that, look, life wasn't easy on him. He wasn't like challenging tough throwing windows. And that goes to Reed's designs. And Mahomes himself chimed in on that saying, so you're saying I was doing the right thing and throwing the open receiver. The job is to scheme these guys open. <laughs> Yeah. Not to just like say, hey, you know, we're gonna run slant flat fifty-two times a game and you need to create Aaron. No. Mm. Get to get your guys some open receivers to throw to. That's the gig.
1: Yeah, and that stat is twelve point two percent aggressiveness percentage, which is lower, but there's so much different context needed for just that number and like even going back to like Trubisky who I'm you know you know I'm not a fan of him I don't think he's good but just to combat the the Benoit or Benoit article whatever it is as much as they ran RPOs he was still right around the top 10 for intended air yards so it's not that like the, the the RPO is like totally shrinking that offense it's it's so weird that the way that everything's if you run RPOs like, that's your offense. That's it. You don't throw the ball downfield. You can't live like that in the NFL not as a head coach.
0: At the same time, the next evolution of the RPO. Let's talk to which about is... that because,
1: yeah, that's definitely yeah. something that I want to get into. The third level reads is something that I've heard Doug Peterson talk about, you know, a year ago, back again when the fad was really hitting. But what, what do you see – As third-level RPOs, do you see them really starting to expand? Is that the next evolution of the RPO itself?
0: Yeah, it it definitely is. And what a third-level read RPO is, is you're not reading a linebacker and making a decision off what he's doing. You're reading a safety now. And you see this from teams like Dallas. You see at the college level as well. Clay Helton. Uh, at USC gave a great presentation a couple of years ago at the Nike Coaching Clinic on RPOs. And he talks about the third level read RPO. And you see this a lot in the red zone where you're going to have an outside receiver run a convertible route, whether it's going to be a vertical release, a vertical release with a back shoulder or a post. And what you throw or what you do as the quarterback is dependent on what that inside safety does. You're going to yeah. show run If that inside safety, say quarters or cover four safety, comes down, the receiver is going to see that, run the post, attack that vacated spot, and you're throwing the post route. If that receiver sort of stays deep in the quarters, you might hand it off, or you might throw sort of back shoulder fade on the outside if you get a matchup you want to attack. But that's sort of a third level RPO style of play where you're not reading linebackers, now you're reading safeties. And that gives you, as an offense, ability to sort of attack some mismatches and, Another way to sort of attack a defense, but now you're just looking. Look, if you get an overly aggressive safety that likes to come downhill and hit, like say a Derwin James or Jamal Adams or a guy like that, here's a way where you can exploit that, not just on play action, but on an RPO type design. If for whatever reason he stays home, now yeah. you still have the ability to just hand it off, not like a a static play-action play where, oh, he stays home, but I'm still
1: trying to force this throw now anyway. From all the things that we're talking about, like, there's so many different correlations between RPOs and just, like, the passing game itself, but it just has that extra run element. That's why I don't think this concept is going anywhere, and it just adds another dimension to it, so... That's our chat on RPOs. Do you have anything else on the RPO before we go to break? I want to make sure that you get it all out there because you might have some more stuff like you did with the Battle of Alicia, and I don't want to cut you short.
0: No, I, I think <laughs> we, we've covered this one. I'm excited to talk about some QBs here in a moment. So yeah. let's let the gentle listeners digest the RPO talk and we'll come back and talk about some QBs.
1: You heard the man. Let's go to break. We'll be right back here on the QB SCO Show, episode 26 here on Bleeding Green Nation. And we are back here on the QB SCO Show, episode 26. Brought to you by the fine folk at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. Michael Kist here with QB1 in my heart, Mark Schofield. Mark, so one of the things I wanted to talk with you about was I know you're probably doing some summer scouting. And, you know, you're going through, you're watching clinics and, and reading up on things. And you're watching some pro game stuff to, to get caught up on where the league is at and everything like that. But not that you really need it. But uh, for the for the college quarterbacks, have you started to really suss out what you're expecting and where these quarterbacks need to improve that are coming up in this next crop that'll probably be coming out in the NFL draft next year.
0: Yeah, we're working our way through that. Ed, just so the gentle listeners know, summer scouting should not be. It sometimes does become, but it should not be all about planting flags and dying on hills and anointing <laughs> guys. It it morphs into that, and I'm as guilty of that as anybody. Look, I died out Watson Hill. I. I had the Deshaun Watson, no matter what tweets back when he was like a redshirt freshman. So look.
1: Well, the Bears should have drafted Deshaun Watson instead of him or Mahomes, but yeah, Yeah, we've been down that road. Stumpy
0: Mitch, we've been down that road. (laughs) Look, I got. I'm 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 writing the Mitchell Trubisky preview for PFW's like Bears magazine, and I'm like cautiously optimistic about the true biscuit uh-huh. and i didn't like him coming out but i i get why our good friend here mr kist has called him stumpy mitch i get it I get you keep it. saying stumpy it's it's slumpy
1: but you know Whatever. We'll,
0: we'll see slumpy, stumpy lipstick on a pig which by the way is an actual expression there's been a book <laughs> titled lipstick on a pig written by victoria clark who is the assistant secretary of defense for public affairs who might know a thin or two about writing. We just had to get that in there. People can't even Google in this economy.
1: I had said that Matt Nagy, you know, didn't have enough lipstick for that pig talking about Trubisky. I wasn't calling Trubisky a pig, which no. apparently people from World and all over Bears Twitter didn't understand. They thought I was calling him an actual pig. It's a rhetorical expression. Okay, that's out of the no, way. We keep that's... going back to it. We'll have to do a show on Trubisky <laughs> at some point. Yeah, but go we ahead, We have Mark. to do that. No, but. <laughs> This is all about getting
0: baselines on guys, identifying strengths, areas that they need to improve, and just getting a feel for who they are. Now, so those of you who are listening know, my process is this. I watch like three to four to five games of every potential quarterback over the summer. Last year, I watched that number of games for 40 different guys. Now, I'm dialing it back a little bit because last year, I watched the guys that are going to be, let's face it, selling insurance next year, and so... I don't need to go that deep, but it is a deep class, and so I'm working my th- way through. And for some of these guys, like say Nate Stanley or Justin Herbert, I've already got say 10 games watched on them from years prior.
1: Right. We've got a nice baseline impression of these guys. Is that because those were guys that decided to stay in school and you were yeah. kind of getting a head start on them?
0: I had basically four full years of Drew Locke by the time he came out, because I watched him some of his freshman year stuff, then sophomore, then junior, and when he decides to come back for a senior year, it's like, okay, well now I've got... I'll have a fourth year of data on this guide analysis. So
1: let's die on some hills.
0: Yeah. Let's (laughs) (laughs) die on some hills, baby. And it's all about setting baselines and seeing sort of how they develop. Because remember, all of this is about projecting what 21, 22, 23 year old men are going to do once they do this as a profession and start to live on their own and life in the big city and all that kinds of stuff. And so you're trying to evaluate how they will project and develop over time. So, having like two or three years of seeing that development is always nice to have that being said this is going to be a fun quarterback class and for those of you who like me are on the east coast start buying coffee because Mm. the west coast has some talent yeah there are going to be a lot of late nights you can talk jordan love a kid i but i'm bump love right now at utah state Mm -hmm. yeah he can slin it I love his decision-making, his process, and speed. Obviously, Justin Herbert and Oregon. We're going to talk about him throughout the season. Jacob Eason now taking over at Washington. I think that offense is going to be much more effective with him because, let's face it, Jake Brown had some arm talent issues. <laughs> KJ Costello at Stanford is a great passer out there. You could go all the way out to Hawaii and Cole McDonald, QB1. who our good friend Bryce could be one of our hearts. <laughs> we did see him with Rolo fired off. The sniper rifle on Twitter the other day, which is just yeah. an amazing photograph. You know, the white quarterback with dreads, prone, fired off a sniper rifle. That's some imagery for you.
1: I told you he went from QB1 to the only QB yeah. with that one.
0: Like, who else are we going to talk about? Now? I wonder. Here's this, though. Is he a Fortnite or a
1: PUBG guy? You know, that's a good question, and that's a question we're going to have to get him or Rolo on the show to to, to answer that yeah. because I feel like there isn't a wrong answer, but there definitely is. <laughs> there is definitely a <laughs> wrong
0: answer to that question, for especially for those of us who spent $30 and an insane amount of Hours trying to play one of those two games.
1: yeah I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, the game was so bad it uninstalled itself within a day. <laughs> and when you try to reinstall it, it's like, don't. No, you just don't. Want don't. This. You don't want to do this. But
0: but this has the potential to be a good class. And those are just like the West Coast guys. Now yeah. let's not forget, we've got Tua. And job number one for many people is to learn how to pronounce his last name. I'm not even going to try right now. I've been working on it, but I'm not even going to try right now. You've got Justin Fields at Ohio State. You've got Nate Stanley, who is going to be that mechanically sound, back to the defense on play action, runs plays under center, C.J. Beathard type guy that is going to come off the board in the second round. Just get ready for it right now. Just get <laughs> ready for it right now. But he does have some talent. You know, you've know, you got, obviously, Fromm at Georgia. We've talked about him, you and I, and some others. I'm not there on him. Yeah, I know you're not there on him, yeah. but you can see why people might like him. But mm-hmm. Jalen Hurts... Is getting a ton of buzz right now taking over at Oklahoma, who, by the way, had the last two number one overall picks. I think he has some issues throwing the ball, but in that Lincoln-Riley offense, he might mask some of that. I still like Kelly Bryant, and I know, look, mm. he got run out of town by... Let's face it, everybody's QB1 in 2021, Trevor Lawrence. right? But I still like Kelly Bryant, and I think he's going to go to Missouri with a bit of a chip on his shoulder. That sometimes helps these guys. It's going to be such a fun—and there are names that I haven't even gotten to yet. It's going to be such a fun class to watch. Yeah. I love every class.
1: This one could be special. If you had to say right now, your top guy, and keeping in mind, all, all hedging, I'll allow it if you want to be a coward, who do you think is the most talented Right now, just, just just from a talent perspective, do you can take away the mental processing and everything like that? Who's the most natural quarterback where you're like, if this guy, if the light bulb comes on, that's the guy?
0: It's either Tua or Herbert for me okay. right now. Okay. I think Tua, you sort of have to realize that he's got some great receivers to throw to. Yeah. And I know look, scout the traits, not the ski scout <laughs> the traits, not the surrounding guys. But they do help him make make him look good at times, but at the same time, He does look very good at times, and you see some advanced understanding of the passing game from Alabama does a lot of stuff in the convertible route realm where he's going to make reads on the fly, like we were sort of talking about with that third-level RPO read. So, he does some good stuff. Herbert, I really like from an anticipation and from a leverage standpoint. You can see him throwing convertible back shoulder routes like 40 yards downfield or so. Hmm. He checks that box, and he's got a cannon. He's got an absolute hose. Just watch his first touchdown pass from last season. That's a fourth and seven play near midfield or so against Bowling Green. And he throws a rope shot to the back middle of the end zone on a post route, split in the safeties. And I don't think it gets more than, say, 12 yards off the field. I mean, it's just an absolute cannon (laughs) shot. And I'm not one to get jazzed about arm talent, but that was like a pepper needs new shorts kind of throw, (laughs) you know?
1: Do you worry at all about Herberts? Maybe he, maybe he's a little streaky. Because you know, he, I remember yeah. watching him and thinking, okay, this guy really strings together some great throws. But when it goes wrong, there's there's a bit of that. Um, God, what's the quicksand? Word? Yeah, it's a bit of the quicksand, exactly yeah. kind of effect with him.
0: Yeah, and that's an issue with some quarterbacks. Look, everybody knows I died on Brett Rippen Hill. I died. I am buried there. There is a tombstone with my name on it on Brett Rippen Hill. Although. According to reports, he's looking great with the Broncos. So hey, he's then, not you know, dead yet. He's not dead yet. He's <laughs> going to have the little Undertaker moment. But that was a re- that was a thing with Ripon that might have scared off some NFL teams. And it had me worried about him as well. As you would see him go through those moments where he makes a mistake and it sometimes takes three or four plays or another drive or two to sort of get back into rhythm. And it's the same thing with Herbert where you can make a mistake, you could miss a throw, and then you see a couple of plays where he needs to sort of get back into the moment. Yeah. Sometimes you don't get that time as a quarterback. Right. Like if you make a mistake in the early fourth quarter of a close game, you might not you might not have two or three drives to get back into rhythm. Game might be over. Yeah, so you you got to shake it off. Game. It's yeah. it's like being a corner. You get beat beat deep on a play and give up mm. a touchdown. You got to shake it off and get right back in it. Otherwise, you're in for a long afternoon or a long night. Mm. So yeah, it's definitely something I worry about right now. But that's one of those reasons why you use it as a baseline. Now, if you go into a season that's coming up. And he has a moment where he throws a pick and you see that again now as a senior, something to worry about. But if you see him start to shake those things off, you see some growth and development and you can help – it will help you sort of project him forward.
1: Yeah. So you're checking boxes that might be on the negative side and you're confirming boxes that might be on the positive side and then you kind of figure out exactly – where you are, Mark, anything else on this class? Who are you really looking forward to or anything like that? I I, I know you mentioned Jordan Love from from yeah. Utah State. I remember watching him when there was a couple of prospects out of there. Darwin uh, Darwin Thompson, the running back and also the tight end there as well. I forget his name off, off the top of my head. but I think,
0: Oh, uh, gosh. Dax Raymond. I loved yeah. that kid.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he's he's looking really fun, but you're saying stay up late, and I agree, because yeah. Cole McDonald and Jordan Love, like, th- those are the guys that kind of have my heart right now. I'm really excited for them.
0: Yeah, and what's disappointing is Hawaii and Utah State don't play each other unless it's going to be in, like, a Mountain West Championship oh, game-type situation. Yeah, They would score a million I, points. <laughs> I literally, like, looked up the schedule, because I'm like, I'm finding a way to get to that game, like, live. Like, I... <laughs> People who, who know me personally or follow my work or whatever know that I absolutely hate to fly. It's like one of my least favorite things on the world to do. I am like <laughs> a nervous flyer. I had a bad flight experience where, you know, drink cart turbulence. Not as bad as the – did you see that one in Romania? No. There was a, a flight like over the Alps or something and literally they had a drink cart situation. Stewardess, flight attendant in the aisle. They hit heavy turbulence. She hits the ceiling of the plane. <laughs>
1: Like that's one of those – I see that. I'm like – It gives a lot of credit. I mean it really hypes up what Hannibal did because you can't even get a plane over that sucker without flying into a ceiling. But
0: like I had one. We legitimately flew through the jet wash like Top Gun style like twice because of some traffic. Drink carts down the aisle, like stuff bursting open. Since then, I'm just a train wreck on a plane. But I would have found a way to get to you know Provo, Utah or Hawaii for that one. Yeah, I mean, we could all find a reason to go to Hawaii, but seriously. But no, they won't play until potentially a Mountain West Championship game, which would be in one of those two stadiums because that's how they do it.
1: Best record, your home field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, stay up late. (laughs) Yeah, definitely stay up late. And Cole McDonald, I don't know if you saw the thing. I think you saw this where they had the spring game. And they had some Vegas betting thing on, but with no context. I think Bryce put it out there. uh, Bryce Rosser of SIS put it out there. It's weird that, that, you know, because Trevor Trevor Sigma of the Draft Network put out his first round mock. And uh, Bryce was saying he was throwing shade on a guy who just scored 11.2 million points (laughs) during his spring game.
0: Hawaii tallies over 20 million points in spring
1: game. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Team Malka prevailed 11.1 million to 9.2
1: million. Yeah. That's just incredible. So, yeah, definitely check out some West Coast football. Stay up late for college football this year. Mark, that is going to do it for the QB Sco Show episode 26. Thank you so much for bearing with us for our history talk. We hope you learned something about RPOs and the college prospects coming out this year. We'll catch you next time here on the QB Sco Show.